Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few minutes of, few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word. If you have an iPad, you don't need to use the new iPad app for confession. I understand that uh, that came out two days ago and the Vatican canned it this morning. So uh, they'll make everything electronic. No, this is just personal between you and the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that you have freely provided for us everything related to our salvation, our spiritual life, and that you provide all of the things that we need logistically to carry out the mission that you have for each one of us. Father, we pray that as we gather this evening that we will also be mindful of the Christians in Egypt, the turmoil that is going on there, the missionaries that serve in many Islamic countries and have... uh, uh, difficult times under normal circumstances, but under these circumstances, it's even more difficult. We pray that you would uh, provide for them, keep them safe, but above all, give them opportunities to stand for their faith and to be uh, faithful to your word. And Father, we pray for many who have uh, Christians who live in Egypt, who have emailed out uh, reports about what is going on, that you would watch over them and and they just expand their opportunities to minister in time, this time of chaos. We pray that as we study your word tonight, we will be, uh, have our confidence in your word strengthened and that our spiritual life will uh, also be strengthened as we grow and mature under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are back in Romans chapter 1, so while you are turning there, I wanted to read to you from a letter I received today, prayer letter I received today from Joe Wall. Joe is the vice president for training of East West Ministries, which is a uh, very good mission organization that operates mostly within the former Soviet Union, but also in some of the uh, uh, some Muslim countries uh, outside of the former uh, Soviet Union, and they... Uh, he received an email from uh, one of their people that they've ministered to in uh, Egypt, and I thought that I would uh, just quote from part of that uh, some of his uh, this Egyptian's key points that we should remember for prayer. He writes, The future of the country and the entire Middle East is in the balance right now. Many are rightfully concerned that taking advantage of the chaos, violence, and looming power vacuum the Muslim Brotherhood will try to step in as the key player in determining the fate of the nation. If that takes place, the consequences will be grave for Egypt and her neighbors. The church is praying that the Lord spare us his fate 
and interceding for some form of stable government to emerge and lead us gradually to freedom and democracy. Let's be in agreement for this miracle. Thugs have taken to the streets, beating and abusing the demonstrators. They have also started many fires to damage property, public buildings, police stations, uh, even uh, national museums. Uh, Please pray that the demonic forces behind these people will be thwarted and that their schemes will be aborted. Pray for every hidden plot to come to light. There are lots of conspiracy theories swirling already and much confusion as a result. Pray that the hand of the enemy forcing its way uh, in to literally steal, kill, and destroy will be exposed and arrested and that the nation will be protected. Please pray for the safety and protection of the people. Police forces disappeared last Friday night, which led to a lot of sabotage, looting, armed robbery, etc. People have had to band together to protect their families and homes with kitchen knives, sticks, tire irons, etc. It's been an amazing show of unity, unity and love, bringing together folks from all walks of life and from different faiths. Finally, please pray that the prophetic destiny of Egypt will advance in the face of this turmoil. Of course, we understand that issues related to that. And uh, he goes on to say, pray that what the enemy has meant for harm, the Lord will use to good and for for the fulfillment of his uh, divine plans and purposes for the nation. Uh, Other reports I've received from Christians there seem to indicate the chaos, also the, the real threat of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, much to much in contrast to what we hear from certain people in not just in the administration, but I, I was I think I heard Paul Wolfowitz on Fox News just uh, before I came making the same kind of statement that he doubted that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood really had the strength of the organization to do anything. And if Satan is behind the movement, uh, they may appear weak, but uh, they're not. I think they've duped a lot of people in the West, and so we have to be very prayerful about what is going on over there. The other night when I talked about uh, talked about the problems going on there, and of course it's a major uh, concern, major concern for Israel and their security. And if anybody gets into power uh, the, that uh, reduces or overturns the Camp David uh, treaty then, of course, Israel will have to uh, probably triple the size of their military and triple their expenditures on national defense. But the Israelis do have a good sense of humor, and the joke that's going around Israel these days is to uh, tell the Egyptians not to destroy too much, especially the pyramids, because we're not going to come back and rebuild them. All right, we are in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and it seems like we're sort of hopscotching around because of uh, different things. Last Thursday night we missed because of the, uh, the weather guessers here in Houston predicted the blizzard of 2011 that did not materialize, although we finally, they were finally uh, justified or Validated a little bit on Friday morning with just a scotch of ice here and there on a few overpasses. And from talking to a few other people who got out early on Friday morning and saw dry streets and no ice, I'm convinced that after watching all of the news reports, all the local news reports, that they found the five places in Houston that actually had ice and a little bit of snow, and they concentrated all of their cameras and reporters in those locations, making it look like look to the rest of us that we needed to stay home. 
somehow they had to justify their salaries in light of the uh, dire predictions that they had made that didn't come true. So nevertheless, so we missed class last Thursday night, and then Tuesday night I had uh, did a special on the Middle East, uh, Middle East update and analysis of uh, Egypt in prophet, history and prophecy. And so tonight we're back in Romans. It's been two weeks, so uh, we're going to, uh, some of the review that I'm doing, some of the other things that we're going to bring in, of course, that's also related to the use of the Old Testament in the New that we were studying in Acts it also pertains to the quote from Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17, so we'll be reviewing a lot of that. So last time we got down to about verse uh, through verse 13. I'll review a little bit about uh, what I covered in verse 13 just to pick up the context. 13 through 15 is actually a separate paragraph leading into the uh purpose paragraph, which is verses 16 and 17. Paul wrote in verse 13, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. That is often God's way in which he directs us in terms of his will. God does not speak to us directly today. The Holy Spirit does not direct directly speak to us today. Any direct speaking is considered direct revelation or special revelation. And special revelation, whether it was to be canonized or not, ceased with the closing of the canon and the death of the last apostle. In the early church, the only group that could ultimately validate and verify and authenticate direct revelation were the apostles and New Testament prophets. And so with them gone off the scene, there's no way to validate, verify, authenticate any claims that God told me X. And so uh, whatever X is, God didn't tell you because he's not speaking today. He's not giving you little vibrations. It's not time to go out and throw the dice or cast lots or draw straws or open your Bible, close your eyes and point at a verse and hope that it gives you divine direction. Uh, anything like that is uh, illegitimate in the church age. The church age divine guidance is given through studying God's word. And then when we make a decision to go forward, if God uh, doesn't want us to go in that direction, he usually has a way of slamming the door shut or preventing us from going in that direction. No matter how honorable our motives may be, no matter how uh, wise our decision-making process was, if we end up wanting to go in a direction that God uh, doesn't want us to go in, then like the Apostle Paul, we will be hindered and hindered and hindered until the right time comes, if indeed it is a, just a matter of timing. And that's what happened with the Apostle Paul. It wasn't necessarily that God kept saying to him directly, don't go. He just, as the, the Apostle Paul made plans, they were uh, somehow uh, never came to fruition. His desire uh, was to uh, that he might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And by fruit, he meant that they would grow and mature spiritually. Fruit is the result of a mature plant. When we have the pastor's conference coming up in a month and um, focus on the spiritual life, I will be speaking on how does a Christian grow? And I will be looking at four or five 
key passages and correlating them on those uh, three nights, dealing with John 15, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, all of which deal with f- producing fruit in the life of a believer. And in, in a- if you know anything about agriculture or plants, it takes a long time to produce fruit depending on the plant. Growth is not fruit. Fruit is the result of a plant that has grown and matured and is, because of maturity, is productive. And too often we confuse those two ideas, and this is what uh, Paul is expressing. By fruit, he doesn't mean um, new converts to the faith. He doesn't mean that the church will grow and enlarge by bringing in new people. He talks about fruit is always used to speak of character and spiritual growth in the life of believers so that they uh, can reflect the character of Christ and the image of Christ, which is the ultimate goal in the Holy Spirit's mission of sanctification for the individual believer. So Paul's goal is expressed again in terms of having fruit among them, just as among the other Gentiles. Fruit is also a major theme in the first part of the first chapter of Colossians, so we'll be studying this uh, doctrine related to fruit and production and spiritual growth uh, quite a bit as we go through the epistle to the Colossians on Sunday morning. And then that is where I stopped the last time, referring to some key passages on fruit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Philippians 1, 10 and 11, Philippians 4, 16 to 18, uh, Ephesians 5, 8 and 9, indeed the whole chapter there from Ephesians 5, 1 down through about 5, 18 or 19 all relates to fruit production. And then we come to verse 14, abruptly, there's no... Uh, transition here from verse 13 to verse 14. There's no and, there's no for, there's no but, there's no now, there's no therefore, wherefore, anything of that nature. There's just this abrupt transition that uh, indicates perhaps uh, Paul's emotion at this particular time because he is... uh, so uh, caught up in what he is saying, he really does have a desire to go to Rome and to have a ministry to these to the Roman uh, Roman believers. And he says at this point in verse fourteen, "I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise." Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about being a debtor? Another way in which we could translate this is using the word obligation. Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Now, he's not under obligation to them because of something that the uh, Greeks or barbarians have done. He is under obligation because of the grace of God in his life and because when God uh, saved him and gave him the gift of pastor. I mean, the gift of, uh, of, of uh, uh, apostle to the, and the mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was under an obligation to fulfill the mission that God gave him in terms of his spiritual gift. And in that, Paul isn't any different from anyone in this room. At the instant every one of us were saved, God gave you a spiritual gift. 
that you were to use under spiritual maturity to the benefit, edification, and encouragement of the body of Christ. And that is part of the mission that God has given each and every believer so that we are under obligation to God to the same degree the Apostle Paul was to grow to maturity and to serve God and to minister in terms of our own spiritual gift, which was given for the purpose of uh, using it in relation to the body of Christ. Every spiritual gift, even the gift of evangelism, is directed toward the body of Christ. Now somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, I thought the gift of evangelism was supposed to be directed to the unbeliever. Well, if you look carefully at Ephesians 4, 10, uh, 10 and 11, it says that God gave gifts to men and then enumerates those gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. And in verse 11 states the purpose is for all of those gifts, those four gifts, that the purpose is for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. That means you have somebody who has a gift of evangelism. Their primary mission isn't evangelism, but teaching the rest of us how to witness effectively and to be better at communicating the gospel to people who need to hear the gospel. And the same thing with the pastor teacher. The pastor's mission is to the, and ministry is to the body of Christ to equip the saints, that's all the believers, to do the work of ministry. And we're equipped to do that by learning how uh, to think according to God's plans and God's, uh, God's purposes. So uh, Paul is under obligation to God. Now, sometimes people get the idea that this concept of being obligated to God to serve him is legalism. And, and that somehow along the way, you get this distortion of legalism, usually by those who are somewhat have a trend towards antinomianism and irresponsibility in the Christian life, and they don't understand that grace doesn't mean that you don't have mandates and you don't have obligations and you don't have responsibilities in the Christian life. If I were to give you anything of value, let's say I were to give you a brand new 2011 uh, BMW. Now, this is yours. The title is signed over to you. You own it. I'm not going to take it back. It's yours. And somebody out there is thinking, boy, I really wish you would do that. But you're under obligation to take care of it. You have to keep the tires under the right pressure. You have to take care of oil filter changes. You have to have tune-ups. You have to wash the car, keep it clean, uh, put the right kind of gasoline in it. All of those things are the obligation that you have as the owner of that vehicle. It's given to you out of grace, but the fact that you have it entails responsibility and obligation. How many times do you see... Uh, young kids, teenagers, given gifts of such nature, and they don't change the oil or they don't take care of it and they don't uh, put the right kind of gas in it or whatever, and it just generates problems because they're not mature enough yet to understand the obligation that goes with the ownership of the vehicle. Same principle applies to the Christian life. So we're all under obligation. 
Now, Paul's obligation is pointed in a specific direction because God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It's interesting that when we have that phrase, it's uh, not with the article. It's not necessarily uh, definite in the sense that he's the only one, uh, which is usually what is thought, that he was the only one. But others also had ministries to the Gentiles, even though that might have been not have been their primary uh, objective. So he his primary mission was to take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. We know that other, uh, other disciples, for example, Thomas, went to India and took the gospel to uh, the people in India and planted a church in terms of a large uh, group of converts in India. And until the uh, European Roman Catholics arrived, that church survived as, uh, as those who were converted by, by Thomas. And then when the Jesuits arrived in the 16th century, then they converted them to Roman uh, Catholicism. Last year I met a medical technician who was uh, descended from that group. He, he was part of that congregation in that area of India uh, where, he had, uh, where he had grown up. Today they are Roman Catholic, but that, uh, that's only been since the 16th century. Before that they were... Uh, they were very different. They were isolated from European Christianity, but they had been founded by uh, the Apostle Thomas, and they were Gentile. So Paul was not the only apostle who went to Gentiles, but he was the primary, the preeminent apostle uh, to the Gentiles. So his obligation to God was in the direction of uh, the Gentiles, and he categorizes the Gentiles in two groups. Two groups where he uses opposite terms to describe these groups. And the first group are the Greeks and the barbarians. And the second group is wise and unwise. Now, wise is parallel to Greeks because Greeks were the originators of philosophy, philosophical thinking. And going back to the um, uh, pre-Socratics, and then you had Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, and then you had... A uh, number of others that followed them, and then you had the uh, uh, later uh, Neoplatonists and others. So they were divided. The Greek culture uh, prided itself. This was part of their strength was in their intellectual uh, capabilities, and in Greek philosophy, the emphasis was on wisdom. In contrast to the Greeks, you have the non-Greeks. The barbarians, the Greeks called them barbarians because they couldn't understand their language, only cultured, educated uh, people that we really wish to associate with spoke Greek. And if we didn't, couldn't understand you, then it just sounded like you were saying bar, 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 bar. And so in the Greek language, they were called barbar, barbarians. And that's where our term comes from. And so the barbarians then are parallel to the unwise. And so by categorizing them in this manner, it seems like the Apostle Paul is using the term Gentile here uh, more in the way in which we would use educated or cultured 
and then at the other extreme, those who are uneducated uh, or uncultured. And so this is this then would represent the two opposites of the spectrum, which is a way of describing something in a figure of speech called a merism. If you say, I'm going to uh, meditate on God's word day and night, you've described the two opposite poles of the spectrum. That means you're making a universal statement uh, saying that you're going to pray continuously or throughout the entire 24-hour period, or continuously meditate on God's word. So by saying he's a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, he's including everything in between. In other words, the entire Gentile world is his uh, is the target of his uh, of his ministry. The word that is used here is the uh, Greek word halasin. Uh, which usually means Greeks, but it can and it doesn't have to refer just to um, just to ethnic Greeks. Uh, Paul uses it many times as a synonym for Gentile, as a contrast to the Jew, and then here it is used in contrast uh, to the barbarian. So when we look at uh, the the phrase uh, looks at the Greeks in terms of the contrast with barbarians, and then the parallel with the wise and unwise. We see that he is basically describing the two opposite ends of the social spectrum, uh, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the cultured and the uncultured, all of those within the, uh, uh, the Gentile world are the object of his ministry. So he's under obligation to God to take the gospel to the Gentile community, whomever that would be and whomever expressed uh, positive volition. And then in verse 15, he says, so as much as is in me, in other words, as much as I can to the fullest extent of my ability, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So those in Rome fall somewhere between the wise and the unwise and the Greeks and the barbarians, and he wants to come and to preach the gospel. Now, the word there for preach isn't the normal Greek word that is translated preach, which is keruso, which had to do with a herald or someone who would come to proclaim an announcement from the king. But this is just the verb evangelizo, which is where we get our word uh, evangelism. Uh, the, the verb form evangelizo and um, evangelos is the noun, means to give or announce good news. The E-U, which in modern Greek, probably in ancient Greek as well, was pronounced like a V, which is why we have evangelism instead of euangelism. Um, uh, the, the modern scholars have discovered through the use of a number of different sophisticated tools that how words were probably pronounced in the ancient world, the kind of pronunciation that uh, most uh, Greek students have been taught historically was really developed by a humanist scholar in the Middle Ages by the name of Erasmus who never heard a native Greek speaker speak Greek. He just sort of invented a pronunciation scheme out of thin air. And that has been the normal way in which uh, people have, as scholars in the scholarly community and academic community have pronounced Greek until recently, in the last 30 or 40 years, 
there's been a uh, sort of a uh, revision made in how uh, ancient Greek was pronounced. Much It was much more closer to modern Greek than to this made-up scheme of Erasmus. And one of the ways you can identify uh, pronunciation is by uh, the way that they confused or misspelled words. If I pronounce the word here, and some of you would write down H-E-A-R, and some of you would write down H-E-R-E, then a thousand years from now, some scholar could look at that and discover that the E-A-R, the E-A diphthong in E-A-R was pronounced the same way as E-R-E. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that confusion take place. And so when we look at ancient manuscripts that were read out loud and then the scribes would write it down and you discover misspellings based on the way they heard the word, then you realize that, that in a lot of ways they would confuse one sound, one sound for one diphthong with a sound for another diphthong. You realize that, oh, that's how that was really pronounced. Otherwise, they wouldn't have confused it. And so it's a very interesting and uh, intricate study, but uh, they've also uh, pretty much demonstrated that just as modern Greeks pronounce that uh, upsilon as uh, in an epsilon, upsilon uh, construction like a V. Otherwise, it's very difficult to pronounce three vowels that run into each other. So that's why we historically, and when it came into Latin and into, into uh, uh, later into English and other European language, Languages that you in uangelizo was actually pronounced like a V, evangelizo, which is why we have the word evangelism. So this is the verb that is stated here. And Paul says, uh, so much as it is in me to preach the gospel, uh, the good news to you are who you who are in Rome also. That EU at the beginning of the word indicates something that is good. So you can attach that prefix to a number of different words, and it indicates something that is uh, beneficial, something that is good. If you want to say some good words about somebody at a funeral, you give a eulogy. You lagos, good words. So that EU means good, and angelizo um, is a word for an announcement, someone who are a message. Angels, angelos, are messengers or announcers. So this is the idea. He is going to uh, proclaim the good news to you who are in Rome also. And then he explains something about the gospel and why it is important for him to do this. In verse 16, he says, for, this is an explanation, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, this is an important verse for several reasons. Number one, it is a great verse to memorize if you are somewhat nervous or skittish or you lack confidence in witnessing to people because it reminds you that you're not to be ashamed of the gospel, you're not to be timid about giving the gospel, and by memorizing this, it will help to strengthen your own convictions and courage in presenting the gospel. 
There are some passages in the uh, New Testament that also use this same word translated for ashamed. In Mark 8.38, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, talking about that generation of Jews that rejected him as the Messiah, uh, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father uh, with his holy angels. In this context, it indicates a lack of salvation. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. He was reminding Timothy that God had not given him uh, a spirit of timidity, but the spirit of courage and confidence in God's word. So um, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That is our mission as believers that we have been given by the Lord Jesus Christ to communicate the gospel to those who need it. But let me put a little addendum here. We ought to have some, uh, a couple of things about evangelism ought to be, be made clear. We ought to have some, some common sense, although I realize that common sense is exceedingly uncommon. There are, there's the right time and the right place to witness to somebody. And sometimes it is more important for you to keep your mouth shut and to establish a relationship with people and so that later on you can have a better foundation for giving them the gospel. Recently I was having lunch with a Jewish friend of mine and he had started the conversation and asking me some questions. What do you believe? How do you know there's really a God? Well, what happens if you're wrong? And he was just having fun with me like he does about once or twice a year to see if I, as he says, he just wants to see if I really have integrity, if I'm really going to stick up for what I believe. And in the course of the conversation, he looked at me and he said, you know, Robbie, if I for one minute thought that the only reason you were my friend was because you wanted me to convert to Christianity, I wouldn't have anything to do with you. And unfortunately, there's a lot of non-Christians out there that feel like they just have some target stuck on their back so that Christians will come along and witness to them because it's been done in an impersonal, sloppy way by Christians who don't have a real care or concern for the people they're witnessing to. They just do drive-by evangelism, and this leaves some, um, some casualties along the road of life. So we have to uh, have some common sense. We have to build re- relationships with unbelievers. I remember, and, and this doesn't happen all the time in our lives. I remember, uh, I hate teaching evangelism courses. I had to do that once at a Baptist church, and I avoided some of the guilt tr- trips that my evangelism, and I had a good evangelism teacher in seminary, but there's just something about teaching evangelism that if you're not in a position to evangelize, it tends to make you feel guilty. And we just need to get over ourselves a lot of times because there are times in our lives when we're, we may not know anybody that's not a believer, especially if you're in seminary. It's really hard when you're in seminary and you're also working in a church. Um, the, the professor would say, now, I want you, everybody, student, to take out a three-by-five card and write down all of the unbelievers you know. Well, there were a lot of blank three-by-five cards. And, uh, and he was, then he went on to talk about how it was important for us to cultivate friendships and relationships with unbelievers. 
And there were always those who would go out and immediately start trying to figure out how they could start making friends with five or ten unbelievers. That's legalism, frankly, because it's it's done for the wrong reason. And I've had period, long periods of time in my life when I couldn't list one unbeliever that I had any kind of association with. And in the last several years, uh, you know, I, I seem to have unbelievers crawling out of the woodwork around me. And we're going to go through different seasons in life like that. And we need to be prepared in the times that perhaps we don't ever have opportunities to give the gospel to really learn and be grounded because one day when we're prepared, God's going to use us as God uses prepared uh, people. And we're going to have those opportunities, and you'll never know what kind of questions you're going to get, how they're going to come in from left field. And so we need to be prepared, and we need to be ready. Otherwise, we'll do what most of us do. I mean, I've I've gone through this just as much as you have. Somebody asks you a question that you don't really expect out of left field. You go, "Um, um, hmm, you know, I've got that written down at home in my notebook. I really don't know the answer. You just sort of fumble around. Um, and you realize how much you really need to learn. And there's nothing greater than being around some unbelievers who ask you hard questions to motivate you to get into the, uh, to get into the Word. So we have to recognize that, that this is our mission, uh, among, uh, for every believer to be a witness to the gospel. Now we often hear that we can be a witness with our life as well as with our lips, and that's true. But too often I hear people use that as a rationalization to not be a witness with their lips, and they're just going to be a witness with their life. Nobody ever got saved by watching somebody else's life. You've got to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, so they have to have something to listen to. Uh, so we need to be ready to give, and as, as Peter said, to be ready to give a, an answer, uh, apologia, a defense, for the hope that is in us. So we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now this is where this verse gets really interesting. Because so often we think of gospel in a narrow sense that Jesus saves, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in the sense of saved from the penalty of sin. And yet that's a very narrow use of the gospel, and even though Paul uses uh, the word gospel in that sense many times, many, many times he also uses the word gospel as he does here to refer to the entire body of Christian doctrine and the Christian message. And that's how he uses it here, that, that salvation here is not um, getting saved or delivered from the penalty of sin. Salvation here has to do with uh, not only what we refer to, what I refer to as phase one salvation or justification in Romans, it ne- it is never a synonym for justification, not once. And yet, when most of us read Romans and we read verses uh, like Romans six twenty one, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We say, oh, isn't that a great salvation verse? It is a great salvation verse. It has nothing to do with justification. Nothing. That's not the gospel. Paul quit talking about how to get justified at the end of chapter 5. Romans 6 is talking about how a justified believer lives and experiences the fullness of life. 
So when he talks about the wages of sin is death, he's talking about the believer who's living in carnality and operational death, living like an unbeliever and not experiencing the fullness of their spiritual life. So when he says the wages of sin is death, he's talking about divine discipline and carnal death in the life of a believer. But the free gift of God he's talking about there is eternal life, meaning the quality of life. That's a hard thing for American evangelicals to understand because we we have been taught and we've heard all these sermons about eternal life that we think of eternal life as unending life in heaven. But it may surprise you that eternal life doesn't mean that ever in the epistle, first epistle that John wrote. And that will be one of the things that David Dunn's going to be addressing when he does his uh, presentation on uh, the purpose of First John at the at the pastors' conference. It's critical to understand that. And if you don't understand that, you can't even have a clue what First John uh, is all about. So Paul uses this word salvation to describe our deliverance from the. Uh, power of sin in our spiritual life, phase two, and ultimately deliverance from the uh, presence of sin in glorification in phase uh, phase three. In fact, there's a, a couple of passages. I'll skip over here. Romans chapter five, verse nine is the next time. I have a typo there. The next time we have. Uh, the word sozo used, the verb sozo used, is in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans 5, 9, Paul says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Justification was the topic of the last half of chapter 3 and chapter 4. By the time he's getting to the wrap-up in chapter 5, he's moved beyond the discussion of justification, and he's transitioning to chapter 6, 7, and 8, which is the spiritual life. So he says, much more than having now been justified. You don't need to know Greek. What's the tense of having now been justified? Past, present, or future? That's past. It's over with. We shall be saved. What's that? Past, present, or future? It's written on the board. It's future. See, you can be justified, but you're not saved. Uh Uh-oh. Are we Arminians? Have we rejected eternal security? No, he, Paul never uses the word sozo or salvation in Romans to refer to phase one justification. He makes a distinction uh, between the two. Once you understand that, all kinds of things open up uh, for us in Romans. So um, back to uh, Romans 1.16, it's the power of God to salvation. Gospel has a full sense here. The power of God to salvation, it really should be understood as deliverance from wrath. And wrath in Romans is rarely, if ever, eternal condemnation. It is the judgment of God on rebellious mankind, whether they're saved or not, during human history. So it should be understood more in the sense of deliverance. It's the power of God to deliverance for everyone who believes for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Notice he says, for everyone who believes, indicating that he doesn't mention anything else. The issue always is faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith alone in Christ alone for justification 
And as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, we are to walk in him as we receive the gospel. In the same way we receive the gospel, that is by faith. That doesn't mean that we don't obey him in multiple areas in the Christian life, but ultimately it all rests on uh, trusting in him. So faith is the foundation for everything in the Christian life, including entry. And then there's the principle to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That was the pattern. Again and again and again, this is not only what Paul did, this is what every, all the other apostles did in the first century before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, because there was still the offer of the kingdom is on the table. The offer to repent, as Peter says in Acts 3, in the times of refreshing will come. That's still on the table potentially until God finally uh, brings the fifth cycle of discipline down on uh, on Israel and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the second temple. So until then, the principle was a Jew first and also for the Greek, which is one reason, even though it's not considered the most scholarly of reasons, I never ever believed that Mark was the first gospel written. You read almost anybody on the gospel, uh, writing on the gospels, they're all going to talk about the priority of Mark and that Matthew and Luke just were reiterating or copying Mark. I always believed Matthew was the first one because to the Jew first and also to the uh, Gentile. And uh, there are numerous other scholarly arguments to back that up, but that I always thought was the most uh, simple scriptural argument for the uh, fact that Matthew would have been the first gospel, uh, first gospel written. So we're to focus on the gospel because it's the gospel that has power, not some sort of mystical juju black magic type of power. It's not some metaphysical power. It is the power of truth. The same thing because truth is the thinking of God, and you're aligned to reality and the thinking of God when you believe the gospel. That's the same thing Jesus is saying when he prays to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It is the power of truth because it is the thinking of God. So then he goes on to explain that a little more in verse 17. And he says uh, in verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. There's another one of those great little uh, introductory statements for a quote from the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. For Let's take this one step at a time. For in it the righteousness of God. And so here we have the first mention of the righteousness of God, which is the topic of Romans. Romans is the greatest logical explanation of the righteousness of God in history. If you understand Romans, you'll never have a problem with why did God let this horrible thing happen to these so-called innocent people in history. You can answer everything if you understand the righteousness of God, that God is righteous, all that he does is just, and that man, because of sin, is unrighteous. And God has revealed his righteousness to man in the way he has judged mankind, the way he has brought his wrath upon mankind in history. That's Romans, second half of Romans 1, also Romans 2, 
And it is through his righteousness that he has provided a free gift of salvation to satisfy his righteousness through propitiation and the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And it is in the gospel, both phase one, not just phase one, but phase two and phase three, the entirety of the gospel, even though the charismatics have perverted the term, I'll use it, the full gospel in its true biblical sense, not the full gospel in its charismatic sense of going out and speaking in tongues and getting slain in the spirit and jumping over aisles and everything else that goes with it, handling snakes or whatever. Um, that's not the gospel of any kind. It is the truth and the implications of everything that flows out of the cross. The, more, the older I get, the more mature I get, sometimes I wonder if maybe some of these Baptist preachers they may not get it totally right, but and I don't, I'm not just picking on Baptists, but Baptists in many ways up until recently, I think, and there's still some great old Baptist preachers out there, used to be the story was if you, if you went to a Baptist church, you never got out of the Gospels. And if you went to a Pentecostal church, you never got out of Acts. And if you went to a Bible church, you never got out of the Epistles. And there was a lot of truth to that. Now, well, great thing about going to a Baptist church, if you, if you have somebody who's really preaching the gospel every Sunday and really explaining it, you're going to grow a lot because the more I look at what Paul does in every one of these epistles, he just keeps unpacking and unpacking and unpacking all of the dynamics of the gospel. And once you understand all of the complexities and dynamics of the gospel, you can understand just about everything. And that's what, what Paul is doing. So it's very important to Constantly go back, look at the cross, and understand it in uh, more and more, uh, more and more ways related to its complexity and its depth. So it's in it, the gospel, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, it's hard to understand what Paul means by these two uses of pistis here, which is the Greek word for faith. Is it faith to faith, faith to faith, meaning faith at justification, to faith at at, at, at sanctification, ongoing uh, spiritual growth, or it, is he simply saying from faith to faith as a summary of the entire spiritual life of the believer from phase one and regeneration and the new birth, which is faith alone in Christ alone, to the fact that every step of the way we're constantly growing in our faith. It's faith to faith to faith to faith to faith to faith all the way through, through until we're absent from the body and face-to-face -face with the Lord. Because his explanation comes from a quote here from Habakkuk uh, 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Now, herein lies a problem. may not appear to be a big problem with some of you, but this is, a, this is an extremely difficult verse to translate and to interpret. Because the question is, is Paul using this in its original sense? And if he is, then it's not a gospel verse. It's not a justification by faith verse. Because that wasn't the issue in Habakkuk 2.4, which we'll get into next time. Others have said that based on the way Paul uses these key words, justification, live, and faith in Romans, where whenever the word justification is modified, it is modified by the, 
by the phrase by faith, that this should be understood in terms of its use in Romans. It should be translated, the justified by faith shall live, which is a way that explains the structure of Romans. That in the first four chapters, Paul is going to explain what it means to be justified by faith. And then there's a transition chapter in chapter 5. And then 6 through 8 talks about how the justified by faith live in terms of sanctification. Also applies it to the uh, Jews in chapters 9 to 11 and their, and their ultimate uh, deliverance. And then from chapter 12 to the conclusion of the epistle, he has practical exhortations related to life. So uh, there's a good case for translating this, the justified by faith shall live. But the problem is the wording in the Greek is the exact same wording and word order that you have in the Septuagint. In Galatians chapter, I mean in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, which follows the word order of the, of the, of the Hebrew in, in that verse. So, uh, what does Paul actually mean here? And so we have to do a little investigation. And that means that we have to go back and remind ourselves of the four different ways in which God, uh, I mean, which, which the apostles quote and use Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Now, we've gone through this on the Tuesday night class in Acts, so those who are listening to this tape can go over and listen to the, I believe it's like the 14th, 15th, 16th lessons in in Acts studies go into this in detail, but we need to be reminded of this here. And so I'm just going to hit it quickly tonight in the next two or three minutes just to uh, set it, and then next time we'll come back review it a little bit more, and then go into Habakkuk 2.4. Because Habakkuk 2.4 isn't dealing with justification uh, by faith in terms of deliverance from the penalty of sin. Habakkuk 2.4 is in the context of uh, the uh, approaching, fast approaching invasion of the kingdom of Judah by the Babylonian hordes. And Habakkuk is, uh, starts off in chapter 1 saying, God, these, these, these despicable, obnoxious Jews all around me are violating your law and they need to be punished. And God says, I'm bringing the punisher. It's the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk is just appalled. He says, how can a righteous God use these unrighteous, nasty, vile Babylonians to punish a righteous people? who aren't living righteous, but how can you do that? And then God explains it to him in chapter 2, and so chapter 3 he writes a hymn of praise because he finally gets his uh, uh, brain wrapped around his own arrogance and his own self-righteousness. So it's a fascinating little book to study. Uh, We have four ways in which Old Testament verses are quoted in the New Testament. The first is literal prophecy. The original context is literal prophecy, and then it's applied in terms of literal fulfillment. So Matthew 2, 5, and 6, which describes the visit of the Magi to Herod the Great, asking him where the king of the Jews would be born. Herod calls in the scribes, and they tell him that it would be in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and they're just going to Micah 5.2, which said that 
uh, in you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah's, Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So it indicates a physical birth. But the one who is physically born is one that has gone forth from of old, from everlasting. In other words, from eternity. So the one that's born is eternal. So it indicates he's divine as well as human. And there are a number of passages. I'll just skip through this slide real fast. A number of passages related to... Um, uh, this kind of use in the um, in the New Testament. The second kind is in Matthew 2.15, literal historical event, something that happened historically, but it's applied through a typology or a foreshadowing. Um, Matthew quoted Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, and we studied this the last time that this indicates uh, the historical event of the Exodus, uh, where Israel was viewed as the firstborn, the firstborn of God. And so uh, that passage is quoted in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I call my son. Matthew applies that, uh, and, uh, I mean, excuse me, yeah, Matthew applies that to Jesus. He follows that same, uh, same, particular, uh, same particular pattern. Then we have uh, let me see uh, uh, literal uh, uh, literal history and an application when Je- uh, Jeremiah is quoted by Matthew when he hears the mothers weeping for their babies who have been slaughtered by Herod. And he quotes Jeremiah 31.15, which was a literal historical event, but there's a certain similarity. Uh, Ramah was north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. At Ramah, most of their sons didn't die. They were just being taken into captivity, and the mothers wouldn't see them again. But they were weeping because of their defeat by the Babylonians and because they they would lose their children, never see them again. And so the parallel is that they were, uh, they were weeping. Rachel, as the wife of Jacob, who is called Israel, is pictured as the mother of Israel, that the uh, mothers of Israel were weeping for their children. So this is an application of a historical event. And then the last is a summary where it's stated uh, in Matthew that... Uh, Jesus would be called a Nazarene, which was basically never said in the Old Testament, but an, uh, someone from Nazareth was looked upon as being rather backward, uneducated, and uncouth. And that pretty much summarizes how Jesus was viewed uh, by, his, uh, by his peers. He was despised and rejected among men, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 53. Now, which of those fits the use of Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17? Well, we'll find out the answer to that next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that we've been saved with a mission to utilize our spiritual gift with reference to the body of Christ, also to be ready and able to explain the gospel to those who need to hear it uh, throughout our lives as faithful witnesses of your word. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the obligations we have uh, due to our gracious salvation and that we might desire to grow and mature as believers to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.